themselves apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. So, anyway, going further, uh, so it's deeply disturbing that Christians and youth leaders are undiscerning in biblical doctrine, validating Christian youth to participate in vampirism, which is idol worship, which is witchcraft. Uh, if we go to... Oh, sorry. If we go to Colossians 2, 18 through 19, I got my Bible upside down. It's going to be hard to read it upside down. Okay, so Colossians 2, 18 through 19. We'll go there. Okay, Colossians 2, 18 through 19. Okay. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility. And I, I believe this does relate to the judgment seat of Christ. You're, you know... You can have gold, silver, precious stones, which would be considered a reward, or wood, hay, or stubble. Let no man beguile you of your reward. Now, if we couldn't be beguiled, what did Satan do to Eve? He beguiled her. He deceived her. Well, you can be beguiled out of your reward, it says here. It says, let no man. If that wasn't a possibility to lose your reward, why does it say, let no man? No man. Uh, See how it says that? No man. Because most of the time, a man is who beguiles you of your reward. Because you've chosen to follow a man. Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and that maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departed from the Lord. Jeremiah 17, 5. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels. We're not supposed to worship angels or any other thing that would be considered idolatry. Intruding into those things which he has not seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. That's what they're doing here. They're intruding into things that they've not seen. They don't understand what they're delving into is witchcraft. They're wanting to put a nice candy-coated veneer on pure evil. They're puffed up in their fleshly mind. They're glorying in their shame, as according to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. They should have indeed rather mourned. And then verse 19, And holding the head from which all the body by joints and bands have nourishment ministered and knit together increaseth, increaseth, increaseth with the increase of God. So let's just go there real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because that, that is pretty applicable to this. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Now I've done a whole study on this called Turning Such and One Over to Satan which is a biblical concept that is hardly ever preached, turning such a one over to Satan. If it was done in the churches, the problem, they'd, ha they'd have to start with the pastor most of the time. <laughs> uh, I hate to say that. I shouldn't be laughing about it, but it's, it's true. It's, it's what would have to happen. So, chapter 5. Um, and I'm just going to start from verse 1. I'm just going to read a few verses here. It is reported commonly that there is fornication among you, and such fornication as not so much named among the Gentiles. These are things not even the Gentiles were doing. They, even the Gentiles knew better than to do this. That one should have his father's wife. Now, it probably wasn't his mom, but it was the wife that it, his father had had. And he, it's like you go steal your dad's... I hope to God that it was not his real mother. But let's, you know... 
It could have, I don't know. I mean, we don't know 100% for sure, but one shot of his father's wife. And you're puffed up and not rather mourned. This is what the church is. They're puffed up. And they're not, they haven't mourned. No, no, they're glorying in their shame. That he hath done this deed might be taken away from among you. That's what's supposed to happen when you have this type of stuff going on in the church. That one's supposed to be taken away among you. You're supposed to put that one out of the church. It never goes on anymore. It's why things are the way they are. It's all we need to know. For verily, as absent in the body, but present with the Spirit, have judged already, though I were present concerning him that hath so done this deed. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together in my Spirit, by the power of the Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such a one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the Spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Problem is, is almost everybody walking around the church has so much sin in their life, if they were to do this in all the churches, everybody would have to go. That's the state of affairs that we're in. And I, again, I am not saying that because I think I'm Mr. Gold Standard. This is just what the Bible says. He says, your glorying is not good. Know ye not that a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. This one person in the congregation is corrupting spiritually everyone there. Why? Because when he walks through the door, he's carrying a boatload of demons with him. And that's affecting everybody. Purge out therefore the old leaven that they that ye may be made a new lump, and ye are unleavened. The same holds true with the Word of God. If you have a leavened Bible, it's going to affect you. But again, they're glorying in their shame. Isn't that what we're talking about today? Glorying in your shame? Let's go further. And again, the biblical warnings against tampering and occultism are replete. And again, you know, Deuteronomy 18, 10 through 12. I've done a whole series on witchcraft. But, you know, it it's talks about not one of you who makes his son or daughter to pass through the fire. That's child sacrifice. Why were they doing that? They were sacrificing typically to Molech, Baal, Lilith, Chemosh, Marduk, the gods and goddesses of child sacrifice, the, one of the highest abominations of God, typically to secure some type of financial reward. How sickening. Or one who practices witchcraft or a soothsayer, one who interprets omens or is a sorcerer or conjures spells or a medium or a spiritualist or one who calls upon the dead. These are all things that are totally forbidden. Old and New Testament. For all who do these things are an abomination to the Lord. What if you're a so-called Christian and you're embracing this? You're, you're, you're becoming an abomination to God. Unfortunately, many churches and Christian organizations downplay the reality of the supernatural war being waged by dead, quote, dead spirits. All they are demons in, dis in disguising themselves as the spirit of the dead. That's all they are. They're familiar spirits. They were familiar with the actions of a particular person. It's one of the main ways they're going to take people to hell. And this whole near-death experience garbage, where these people, oh, I saw the light, and there was... Dearly departed, aunt, you know, Uncle Jim and Aunt whatever, and they weren't even Christians. I did a whole series on the, on on near death experiences, just key in near death, in the keyword search box on my homepage. That'll load your boat on that. So the supernatural war being waged by dead spirits and neglect the reality of abusive spiritual warfare by demonic authorities. If only those who confess Jesus Christ as their Lord would learn to abide in His Spirit and know Him through His Word then they would be better equipped to discern error from truth. Amen! That's exactly what 
I'm trying to say here. And they would get involved in the good fight to earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. We're supposed to earnestly contend. What does that contend mean? Fight? We're supposed to fight. We are called to fight. Oh no, we just need to flip through life and just foot loose and fancy free and just talk about the love of God. We don't need to worry about concern ourselves with anything like this. So a lot of people say. It's too militant for them. The Bible talks about being a good soldier. These types of things. But they're supposed to be get involved in the good fight. We are called to and warn against rather than encourage fads like Twilight. Now, this was from uh, Carol Matriciana. She's got some really good tapes on the occult, one on Halloween. The one on Halloween, uh, I had that one, and uh, they interview ex-occultists that were kids and how they you know, were involved in uh, these sacrifices around Halloween, literally human sacrifices, and people that were involved in covens and things of this nature. It's a really good one if you want to know and how they're, they're basically told that they need to go into these Christian churches and infiltrate them cause as much division and strife as possible, particularly ones that have soul winning involved. CarolMatriciana.com <clears throat> C-A-R-Y-L-M-A-T-R-I-S-C-I-A-N-A.com <clears throat> So, again, and again, I'll have this in the PDF. Now, and I think this is the... Okay, we'll go further here. This is a little article called The Story Behind Twilight. And again, the, the theme of Twilight, their, their thing is the hands with an apple in them. Like It's like Satan offering you the apple. That's their theme. It's, so it's the temptation. Will you take it? It's like Satan's hands. And yet they call this good? Are these Christian organizations? <clears throat> The story behind Twilight. I get a ton of questions and how I came up with the story of Twilight, how it got published. I may be killing my FAQ page by doing this, but here's the whole story. Now, this is from Stephanie Meyer. Here's what she says about Twilight. So, if you still have any doubt, hopefully this will take care of it for you, because this is right straight from the horse's mouth here. The writing of Twilight. She says, for my setting, I knew I needed someplace ridiculously rainy. This is, this is the author. I turned to Google, as I do for all my research needs, and looked for a place with the most rainfall in the United States. This turned out to be the Olympic Peninsula in Washington State. I pulled my, up my maps of the area and I studied them, looking for something small, out of the way, surrounded by a forest. And right there, right where I wanted it to be, was a tiny town called Forks. Now, it had a town next to it called Spoons. No, just kidding. Sorry, sorry. Sorry about that little, little humor. Anyway, sorry. Forks. And it could have been more perfect. It couldn't have been more perfect if I had named it myself. Like what? Like a forked tongue? Or like, you know, the forked tail of Satan? Or, I don't know, forked tongue of the serpent? Anyway, sorry. Uh, I did a Google's image search of the area, and if the name hadn't sold me, the gorgeous photographs would have done the trick. She's even got images of this rainforest that she can show you. Evidently, it was really important to her. In researching Forks, I discovered the La Push Reservation, home of the Quatilli tribe, which is just 
a pagan Indian culture. Now, I'm not against, you know, I'm not coming down on the Native Americans. I understand that's what they were, um, that was what they were about, okay? But unfortunately, that religion will get them straight to hell. But evidently, it had this spiritual vibe for her. And um, this Quatili tribe was the the Quiluti story is fascinating, and a few fictional members of the tribe actually became intrinsic to my story. All the time, Bella and Edward were quite literally voices in my head. Now, please understand what we're talking about here. I know he talked a little bit about this before when we talked about her dreams, but now she's really coming out in the open and saying how she wrote this. All the time, she went up to this the rainiest spot, the darkest spot in America, the Olympia Peninsula, to write this book. And all the time, these Bella and Edward characters were quite literally voices in my head. They simply wouldn't shut up. I'd stay up as late as I could to stand, I could, as late as I could stand, trying to get all the stuff in my mind typed out and then crawl, exhausted, into bed. My baby still wasn't sleeping through the night yet, so only to have another conversation start in my head, I hated to lose anything by forgetting. So I'd get up, head back down to the computer. Eventually I got a pen and notebook for beside my bed to jot down notes so I could get some, as she called, freaking sleep. It was always an exciting challenge in the morning to try to decipher the stuff I'd scrawled across the page in the dark. Again, this is no different than Alice Bailey channeling all her books... The blueprint for the new age, essentially. Alice Bailey being a, a disciple of H.P. Blavatsky. They were both Luciferians, essentially Satanists. High-level occultists. And it's the one that got Benjamin... Alice Bailey's book got Benjamin Cream into the occult. And ultimately, he became the Pied Piper for Lord Maitreya. Or Devil Maitreya, as I like to refer to him as. No different. Twilight is the next Harry Potter. In fact, many are saying, Who's Harry Potter? Many, are, many of the same Potter fans are now quite loyal to Meyer's saga. Remember what I said? This is like a prelude to... Um, Harry Potter was like a prelude to this. Meyer's saga, and it's a logical move for the cultural craving of supernaturalism. From a school of witchcraft to a clan of vampires, readers and moviegoers are now again proving how broad the thirst for mystical power, whose source is decidedly not God. So this is entitled, Evil versus Good... Evil versus more evil. The storyline of Twilight is generally two-faceted. It is a first boy vampire meets mortal girl. And secondly, good vampires fight bad vampires. It's like good and white witchcraft. And then, there are werewolves introduced in the second book, New Moon. we got to get the werewolves in on it. we got to talk about lycanthropy, which is the study of werewolves and shape-shifting. So many of the characters in the novel possess supernatural abilities, such as mind-reading, levitation, lycanthropy, shape-shifting, werewolves, precognitive knowledge of future events, or mediumship, all of this is forbidden in the Bible, and super-strength hearing and speed. A quick reading of Deuteronomy 18, 9-12 clearly outlines God's final word in many of these vampire attributes. Interestingly, Meyer begins Twilight with the words of Genesis 2, 7. She begins the Twilight series. She has the audacity to begin the Twilight series with the words of Genesis 2.17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. She's coming right out and saying this. 
Even though Meyer says on her website that the cover of the book, The Apple, symbolizes forbidden fruit, and that the Genesis scripture reference is related to Bella's eventual understanding of the knowledge of good and evil, the inference of this passage is much more. It is about the fall of mankind and about eternal life, something vampires claim to have. And that's a bunch of garbage, because they're going to get cast in the lake of fire just like all the other devils and demons. The Cohen family is led by Edward's father through vampirism. The best vampire, Dr. Carlisle Cohen, so evidently he's the best vampire. The elder Cohen was raised centuries ago by a father who, as an Anglican pastor, hunted witches, destroyed werewolves, and vampires. Speaking of this, in the manuscript, Meyer throws a direct barb towards supposedly intolerant Christian ministers. Some believe that due to his background, Dr. Cullen's character seeks to rise above the nature of a vampire, becoming a doctor in order to do, to do good and serve and save people. Meyer has incorporated in Dr. Cullen's makeup the Mormon edict that a person must accomplish their own good acts in order to be redeemed. I commonly refer to this as works salvation, which is the mainstay taught in every Mormon seminary, church, and home, and every other religion too. You're working toward your salvation, whatever that salvation may be. Ultimately, though, one second on the other side of death, they realize that they were lied to their whole life, and their whole life was a total lie as they plunge in to hell. In Mormonism, the onus for salvation is all about what a person does for the Mormon church instead of what Jesus Christ completely finished for us on the cross. His finished work. Concerning this, it is interesting that more than one Mormon blog entry has complained that Meyer integrates far too much Mormon doctrine into her books. The fact that the entire Twilight series is glamorizing and promoting vampirism is it is fueling the craving for the eternal human life and for a dominating superhuman abilities and strength. In the book, the movie Bella, the, the book and movie, Bella powerfully begs her vampire love interest to make her one of his like by biting her neck, of course. Edward restrains himself, but only for the sake of drawing out more suspense. For she does indeed join him in the vampire status in later books and the future movie. Though Bella's unwanted pregnancy later in the series does not end in abortion, one has to wonder if the union of two vampires could produce a God-created human in the first place. No, I don't believe it could. I'm sorry. I believe this is part of Satan's seeds, the parable of the wheat and tares. The wicked go astray from the womb. They speak lies as soon as they be born. We've, we've quoted all those verses before. You know, vessels of wrath fitted for God's destruction. To revisit a theme I wrote and spoke of many times during the height of the Harry Potter fad, the heroes of today are much like the villains I grew up watching on TV. Gone are the likes of Roy Rogers, Ward Cleaver, and Red Skelton. The people who were asked to root for at the movies more today act like the thugs portrayed in the 1950s Hollywood entertainment. Well, it's just the progressive uh, desensitization of humanity. You know... The guys with the white hats and the black hats, now the guys with the black hats are the ones everybody roots for. The marker of truth in what is good and right has surely moved, and it hasn't been pretty. I will admit that in comparison, the content of Twilight seems lightweight in the overall scheme of today's modern motion picture th industry. But they did that on purpose, to bait people in. The trailers previewing other forthcoming features that were shown 
before the screening of Twilight film were frankly shocking and full of occultism and gut-wrenching violence. Now, I'm telling you right now, I don't believe a Christian should be there at a movie theater anyway. The Bible says to set no wicked thing before your eyes. You're also giving money to the wicked Hollywood establishment that we just talked about. You're also exposing yourself to all kind of subliminal embeds. You're also not fleeing all appearance of evil because if you're a true born-again Christian and some guy sees you and he's not a Christian, he's like, hey, well, if he's doing it, I can do it. It must not be that bad. And, you know, he might lose respect for you or she might lose respect for you. There's just a lot of reasons not to go to a movie theater. Um, So the trailers previewing other forthcoming features that were shown before the screening of the Twilight film were frankly shocking and full of cultism. Um, however, we have stooped, have we stooped so low as to say Twilight, with its vampire heroes and its PG-13 rating, is somehow more acceptable than the more gruesome R-rated jobs. It is not as bad, somehow, as a prerequisite making some think it's okay for our kids. And again, that's just different gradations of evil. Since when did the lesser of two evils become a a biblical principle? One needs to be aware that there are Satanists who in real life practice drinking the blood of humans. To many occultists, vampirism is not just a fairy tale, but something coveted. No matter how dreamy Hollywood may present Edward Cullen, or how to to be or how obsessed some junior hire may have become with him, Twilight is nothing short of Satan's cloak of evil, Appearing is good. Remember, the most deceptive evil is not the most obvious. It is the most subtle. I agree. And the Bible agrees. It is also induces more people who may be repulsed by overt darkness to begin journeying from right to wrong. See, this type of show win way more people over than some slasher film at the horror movie that a lot of, let's say, lukewarm Christians would say, oh, no, I don't want to go see that, but oh, Twilight's great, and look, Christianity Today and Homeschooling Moms is endorsing it and Focus on the Family must be okay. And again, Isaiah 5.20 warned of them to call evil good and good evil. The most famous line in the book and the movie is Edward Cullen's statement to Bella, where he says, quote, And so the lion fell in love with the lamb. This is Meyer's crafty yet sick play on biblical words. The truth is, when Satan is vanquished and evil is defeated, then and only then will the lion and the lamb live together in harmony. Not as a hundred-year-old vampire and his wannabe girlfriend. While, in other words, he's comparing himself the lion and the lamb. Bella and Edward. While Meyer's character, Bella, so flippantly decides that nothing is more important than spreading eternity with Edward, spending eternity with Edward, regardless of the consequences, shouldn't we be focused on our future eternity with God and on introducing as many to him before it's too late? And this is the last article here. I know I'm way over on time, but I can't see going to another part here. I I probably should have, and I'm sorry, but I'm just going to finish this out. What is Twilight saying to young women? The Twilight Saga is an international sensation, but unlike other recent blockbusters, for example, the Harry Potter series, this fan base tilts very, very heavily towards females. One fan site listed a ratio of 31 registered females for every male, so this is very much going after women. It's more romantic. Stuff like that. Uh, I would venture to say it may be optimistic about the number of males. So 31 to 1 ratio, females to males on this. 
The series has been carefully marketed. Now, again, when... I know I've talked about the Book of Enoch a little bit, but it talks about the, 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 the um, fallen angels taught the women witchcraft. They corrupted the women first. There had to be a reason. They taught them enchantments and root cuttings and all types of things. It says that in the Book of Enoch. This is where we get the inception of modern day witchcraft. Taught directly from forbidden occultic knowledge from the fallen angels. Just something to think about. I'm not coming down on women. I'm just saying Satan seems to really be going after the women on this one and teaching them witchcraft. It's no different than it was the days of Noah. The series has been carefully marketed as a courtly romance based on old-fashioned morals, but this is simply untrue. Have a look at what Twilight star Robert Patton says about the effect Edward is having on little girls. It's weird to have girls that are so young have this incredibly sexualized thing around you. It's weird, now this is a quote, Twilight star Robert Patterson, and I guess he's the guy who plays Edward. He says it's weird to have girls that are so young have this incredibly sexualized, quote, thing around you. It's weird that when you get an eight-year-old girl coming up to you and saying, can you just bite me? And then she says, I want you to bite me, an eight-year-old girl. It's witchcraft. It's defiling the innocence. This goes on to say, it's really strange how young girls are considering this book, considering the book is based on the virtues of chastity, but I think it has the opposite effect on its readers. That's pretty sick. But again, if Satan can defile the youth at the earliest possible age, those youth grow up and they remain defiled, and they become more defiled. And then they can, they can in turn defile others. And they get involved sexually at the earliest possible ages. So I feel I must begin by dispelling the myths that are so being used to promote the books to principled parents. Do not be deceived by those who call this a pro-chastity book. Hopefully we've already covered that. Honestly, that's like calling the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition pro-chastity because the girls are barely clothed. It's true that the couple don't go, quote, all the way until after their wedding in the fourth book. But Bella gives, oh, isn't that wonderful? She saved herself from marriage to the vampire. But Bella gives detailed first-person accounts of her encounters with Edward. Everything from trying to unbutton clothing, to how loud her breathing is, and or how this or that feels. These detailed first-person descriptions are designed to arouse young girls. How can books in which the author has written detailed first-person descriptions of actions leading to arousal help readers to be a chaste virgin? Anyone who claims that these books promote chastity, 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 sorry, must deny the experience of the star of the movie who claims otherwise. They are pages and pages of text that will show why girls are being so corrupted and perhaps being led down a path of further, well, definitely being led down a further path of corruption. Quote, making out before marriage is not chaste behavior. Common, yes, but an example of a Christian virtue of chastity? No. Its mutual use 
It is mutual use, intemperate, unjust, and uncharitable. Books which describe this in detail accounts are not chaste and cannot be used to promote chastity. The fact that the books are not as graphic as other teen novels does not mean they are therefore innocent. Oh, it's just the lesser of two evils. Come on, lighten up, you old fuddy-duddy. Evidently, I am an old fuddy-duddy. Anyway, so, be not deceived by those who say Edward is virtuous. Edward is a vampire. He chooses to date Bella even though he has an overflowing desire to kill her. This is contrary to love. Oh yeah, kind of. True love will end a relationship before it will put a beloved one at risk because it seeks first and foremost the good of the beloved. Just take a moment to think about this quote from the movie. Edward tells Bella that she does not fear him because she believes a lie. He tells her, quote, I'm the world's most dangerous predator. Everything invites you in. My voice, my face, my smell. I am designed to kill. I have killed before. End of quote. He's a serpent. They are. They are designed to kill. He's killed before. But she's believed a lie. She's under his spell. The Bible says, of whom a man is overcome, the same he is brought into bondage. If you read the Twilight series, you're allowing this wicked teaching in these cursed books to overcome you. And now you're brought into bondage and you don't see anymore. <laughs> You might have saw a little bit at the beginning, but you don't see any more now. But then again, you might have just been a Harry Potterite, and this was just the next transition. You were already blind to begin with. So he says, I'm designed to kill. I've killed before. And what is Bella's emphatic response? Quote, I don't care. She doesn't care. Because she's under a spell. So is that healthy? It has been suggested by others that this demonstrates Bella's courage. Oh, Courage what? To go to the lake of fire? No, it just shows the disturbing, the disturbing depth of her obsession. Do not be deceived by those who say Bella is strong. Bella is a pathetic character, drawn to a bad guy, even though lots of good guys like her. Well, good guys by whose standards? She is a child of divorce who thinks marriage is, quote, stupid. Husbands are, quote, dull. And babies are, quote, noisy and covered in goo. End of quote. Sounds like a real model example of a biblical wife to me. Husbands are stupid. Marriage is stupid. No, husbands are dull. And babies are noisy and covered in goo. She'd probably be the first one to go to the abortion clinic. Of course, I guess she does get pregnant, so I don't know how that turns out. She is attracted to Edward because he's so unconventional. He's a bad boy. You know, how girls like the bad boys? So much greater than mere mortals. Oh yeah, whatever. Bella is obsessed with Edward, spends a great deal of time thinking about and attempting to harm herself when he goes away for a while and happily gives up her soul to become a vampire. How sickening. What an abomination in the sight of God. So isn't that courageous? She gives up her soul to become a vampire. Isn't that, or is it immature and deluded and weak? So she's willing to choose hell and the lake of fire happily. And that's supposed to be a Christian example? Well, according to, now, um, according to these other supposed Christian websites that we quoted, evidently it is. The audience for this book series has now reached 17 million. And the movie has opened to a 7 
$70 million first week at the box office. Now, all that money is going straight to Satan. $70 million, right to Satan. Those in the media are claiming that teen girls will never again be ignored or underestimated as an audience. Oh, good. I'm so glad they got that straight, finally. Here's another article. Over the weekend, this is entitled, Chicago Twilight Convention, Promoter of the Occult. Over the weekend, this was February 6th, 7th, and 8th, we had a Twilight Convention here in Chicago. If you're wondering if the Twilight Saga is a gateway into the occult, have a look at some of the speakers crammed in between meet and greets with the stars of the Twilight movies and discussions of the movies to come. So, okay, they have this Twilight convention. they got some of the Twilight stars there, and they've got all these other guest speakers. See, this is just the doorway into the occult. This is just the beginning. From 12.30 to 1.00 p.m., Modern Vampirism in Practice and Culture, presented by Sebastian T. Van Houten. Sebastian is one of the central personalities of the vampire subculture. He joined the community in 1992 and is now an authority on vampirism, fangsmithing, and strigoli v. Whatever that is. Fangsmithing? I don't even know what some of these terms are. Was that where, I mean, maybe that's where you actually get... You see these people, they've got their actual teeth made into fangs. You see them. I've, I mean, I've seen them interviewed. But he's an expert on that. Sebastian is the founder of a number of businesses and organizations, including Sabretooth, Endless Night Productions, and The Sanguarium. He has appeared on numerous TV shows, documentaries, and publications, including A&E, CNN, Discovery Channel, History Channel, USA, MTV, and Cosmopolitan, New York Times, etc. Want to know more about The Sanguinarium? Which is what this guy's the head of. The Sanguinarium was a network, community, and resource for the vampire subculture and scene founded in 1995 by Father Sebastian as a as Clan Sabretooth in the New York's underground club scene. Now, in the big cities, this is very, very, very prevalent in the club scenes, this vampirism. Inspired by the vampire, vampire connection of vampire bars... They've got vampire bars, nightclubs, and safe houses. Founded in Anne Rice's Vampire Chronicles, the Sanguinarium, Sanguinarium serves to bring this vision to life as a real vampire connection. So in other words, to really have real vampire bars, nightclubs, and safe houses on the vampire club scene. That's his goal. It has expanded to include organizations and businesses, havens and individual members who are now united under a code of ethics and morality known as the Black Veil. A code of ethics and morality. But see, their ethics and morality are death and hell and violating others and drinking blood. All the things God detests. That's their code of ethics. This black veil is also known as the 13 rules of the community. The community of vampires. Notice 13, the number of rebellion. They've got their own subculture. And this is real. And guess what? Now they've got a great... I guarantee you their membership is surging. Just like when Harry Potter came out. And the Wiccans were so happy because their membership was surging. Witchcraft becoming one world religion. Film at 11... I'm telling you, it's coming. 
It's going to be the essence of the coming one world religion. Almost all the religions are involved in witchcraft anyway. Catholicisms, idol worship, praying to the dead, all of this abomination, Hinduism, Buddhism, it's just witchcraft. It's all it is. Just repackage a little bit differently. Mormonism, same thing. They're all doing it anyway. It just has a different, little bit of a different veneer from false religion to false religion. And I am all I am is a watchman trying to point that out and a teacher. That's all. So, although officially disbanded as an actual organization in 2002, the Sanguinarium continues to exist in, in practice. The manifesto found on their webpage states, The Sanguinarium is a network of individuals, social organizations, and businesses for which the vampire is a metaphor representing a community interest in fetishism, like a fetish. Usually that's involved with sick sexual things that you're into. Fetishism, the occult, theatrics, art, lore, as well as individual and spiritual expression and exploration. Boldly going where no man has gone before, evidently. As though they think. The Sanguinarium's final goal and purpose is to bring together all people who enjoy and find pleasure in darkness, occult, vampirism, and dark fetishism. You know, hey, where do I sign up? I mean, this is what they're admitting to, and this is one of the guest speakers. See, this is where devil, the devil wants you to go. Yeah, yeah, the Twilight series, that's all well and good. That's entry level. Oh, that's Harry Potter's entry level. We want you to get into the real... You want to really experience this lifestyle? Well, we've got it for you. They find pleasure in darkness, occult, vampirism, and dark fetishism. It's right off their website. Quote, Father Sebastian, and even though the Bible calls, says, call no man father but your father in heaven, but he calls himself Father Sebastian. <laughs> Formerly known as Father Todd operates the Vampiric Almanac, which produces and promotes many club events, publishes and promotes various documents and books, and provides publicly for the vampire subculture and the BDSM, I imagine that stands for bondage and sadomasochism, fetish scene, often mingling the two to provide a unique aesthetic. So they're mingling bondage and sadomasochism, sex, that's what they're all about. You wonder how many books it's going to take for this Meyer lady to get into that. Because eventually that's where, you know, if you let Satan take you into sin, that's eventually where you're going to end up. You're going to end up into deeper and darker sin is the point here. Um, the newest venture to hit the scene is the Ordo Strigali V, or OSV, which is a dark spiritual pathway and vampiric religion... Designed for the vampire subculture. The OSV is recognized is a recognized church in one of the most wicked places on earth, Amsterdam. Doesn't surprise me there. The OSV is a recognized church in Amsterdam and is supported by the first by the Church of Satan. Oh, but it's all innocent. Focus on the family, Christianity today, oh yes. Let your guard down. We're emissaries of Satan. We want you to let your guard down, Christian. Just embrace Satan in all his beautifulness. 
Isn't that what they're doing? This is one of the speakers in between the in between the people that play in Twilight series. Now, listen to what we're saying here. The newest venture to hit the scene, the Ordo Strigali or whatever, which is a dark spiritual, I'm quoting from their website, a dark spiritual pathway and the vampiric religion designed for the vampiric subculture. It is a religion. They're admitting to it. Recognized by the first church of Satan. I don't know what more proof I can give you. But let's give you some more. Martin, here's another speaker here. Martin V. Riccardi, Ricardo is a behavioral hypnotist. Hypnotism being one of the main ways you can get good and demon-possessed. Just let yourself get hypnotized. Demons just flow in. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Martin V. Ricardo is a behavioral hypnotist and the director of Vampire Studies. An information center for vampire physics. Hypnotism is no different than kind of like the psychic stuff. These things. It opens you up to demonic infestation. Even if you got benefit from it, even if you learn some truth, it doesn't matter. Satan will give you a little bit of truth in order to get you hooked in and damned forever. Now I'm not saying, I mean, it's salvation is dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ and his finished work and what you do with that. Okay, I'm, then that's a whole other subject, and I've done that in another series. But I'm saying, if you get hooked into the occult and into this stuff, the longer you stay in it, the less and less likely is the chance that you will ever get saved because your conscience is being seared progressively with a hot iron, and you finally get to a point where you cannot be saved anymore. I'm not saying Jesus Christ isn't powerful enough to save you, but He doesn't give you infinite amount of chances to, to get saved. The Bible says the Spirit of God will always strive with man forever. I'm not saying he can't save you. I'm just saying that, let's be, let's be realistic here. The longer you're a Satanist, do you think it betters your chance of getting saved? That's why most people get saved, get saved when they're young. They don't have all the demonic baggage they might have when they're 50 or 60. Either. That's a whole other subject. But go, going with this, this guy... Martin V. Ricardo, behavioral hypnotist and the director of Vampire Studies, an information center for vampire fans that he founded in 1977. He has been quoted in the Wall Street Journal, USA Today, in relation to his vampire research. Mr. Ricardo has written several books on vampires and many magazine articles. He has communicated with thousands of vampire fans over the years and is one of the cultural experts consulted in the National Vampire National Vampire, but endless magazine. Founded in 1977, the Vampire Studies Society, Martin V. Ricardo, the organization was the first vampire club to use the word vampire in its name. Here is Amazon.com's description of his latest book, Liquid Dreams of Vampires. They say, the vampire is a mutable creature that has gone from the embodiment of evil in folklore to the epitome of the last romantic and erotic taboos of the 20th century. Ricardo explores the role of the modern vampire by gathering personal accounts of dreams, nightmares, and fantasies involving those shadowy blood drinkers. The letters he receives range from tame daydreams to erotic storylines and gory confessions. 
From these memoirs, the image of, it, of the fiend is slowly transformed to surrogate to a surrogate religious figure in a reflection of the repressed darkness within us. From these memoirs, the image of the fiend, the vampire, is slowly transformed to a surrogate religious figure. I mean, isn't, isn't Edward Bella's God, in essence? Isn't she following of whom a man has overcome the same he's brought into bondage? Well, if somebody has you in bondage, if you're, overcome, if you're following that person, have you not made them your God? That's what it is. And that's why these vampires translate themselves into these religious figures. And it is a religion. Don't kid yourself. Just like they admitted in the preceding paragraphs. And that's, that's the end of the study. I'm going to go ahead and split this last part up into two parts. So if you hear me say, why didn't I split this up or why don't I? I'm going to split it up. This will actually end up being... I guess four parts. I didn't really mean it for, to be that long, but in order to cover all that, we had to do that. So I'll go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you have given us. I praise you, Lord God, for all of your goodness and mercy that you have bestowed upon us. I thank you, Lord God, for, for letting us see the unfruitful works of darkness and reproving them and having a fellowship with them and shedding light on these dark subjects. We are called to be salt and light and to earnestly contend for the faith. And I pray, God, that you use these teachings and wherever your word is being preached worldwide to wake up the lukewarm church, Lord. And those, Lord God, that are not saved, I do pray, God, you'd save their souls. I pray to God you'd save them. I pray to God for your mercy that you'd lead them out. I know, God, at one time I was very deceived being in the Pentecostal church. I don't want to sit here and, and act as though I'm better than they I just pray, God, that you save them. I pray your fear would be upon them like a thick cloud and that that fear would drive them to repentance. Godly sorrow worketh repentance, Lord God, and the goodness of the Lord leadeth thee to repentance. I just pray, God, you, have, you do whatever it takes to lead the unsaved that are looking at these and, and lukewarm Christians, just to lead them, Lord God, to your purity, to your truth, to your righteousness, that you would unblind them that they could see and, and unstop their ears. But I also know, Lord God, you said in your word in Second Thessalonians that God will send the strong delusion, that they will believe a lie, that they might all be damned who receive not the love of the truth. So, Lord God, I pray, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done in regard to this matter. I pray you forgive us for any and all sins we've committed in any way, shape, or form, and that you would wipe our slate clean, that you would cleanse us from presumptuous sins and secret faults, that they would not have dominion over us, and that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing and acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer, and that we would forgive all those that have sinned against us, Lord God, and we would have mercy upon those that may have not had mercy on us. And we pray for your mercy, Lord God, in our lives. I pray for your fear and your blessings and your goodness to be upon my listeners, all those that would hear these recordings, us here gathered together now. I pray, God, that your angels would encamp around about us, Lord God, and that you would use us mightily in the days to come for the sake of the souls that need to be saved and for the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. I pray you use us mightily. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Thank you.